All right, let's get our Bibles ready or version open, whichever you want to use this morning. version is your best uh, shot because it's got all the notes right there. Let's start by answering the five questions that every church has to answer. And they may answer them differently, but we'll answer them for ourselves this morning. I first introduced these questions to you in the roundtable that happened about a month ago. Are spiritual gifts assigned by gender? When you read the Bible and you see the three spiritual gifts passages, do you have any context there that talks about these gifts are for men or these gifts are for women? The answer is no, they are not. Gender is not mentioned in the text. It's not mentioned anywhere in the context. They're never parsed by gender. Are women in roles of leadership in the Bible? Slam dunk, yes. Uh, Next question, are women in the same leadership roles as men? We've already seen in these weeks together looking through the scripture that women are serving in the same leadership roles as the men. We've already seen women apostles, Romans 16, 7, women prophets, Acts 21, women evangelists, uh, women patrons, these are the ones financing the whole work of the ministry, women teachers, Acts 18, women deacons, Romans 16, women prayer leaders, 1 Corinthians 11, women overseers of house churches, multiple times in the, in the New Testament, and I can give you all the references privately if you want them. Overseer of a house church, you're seeing, you're seeing uh, Lydia and Chloe and Phoebe and uh, 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 Overseer of a house church sounds a whole lot like episkopos, like that word bishop we talked about, someone who oversees the congregation. Question number four, here's where it gets interesting. Are there any restrictions placed on women's roles? Well, the answer is yes, there are. They're found in two different passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in 1 Timothy chapter number 2, and those will be the subjects of this morning's sermon and next week's sermon. That leads us to question number 5. Do any of these restrictions, I could say do either of these passages, have specific cultural contexts? In other words, we need to look at those two passages and figure out what's going on and see what the exact context is of that passage. This morning, as I said, we'll begin to examine the first of those, 1 Corinthians chapter number 14, and what we're looking to know is to determine if those restrictions have any specific cultural context, and if we find that the restriction mentioned in the Bible is directly connected to a specific cultural context, then we'll have to ask ourselves: is our cultural context their cultural context? In other words, do we have the same contextual thing happening in Fort Worth in 2019 as they had happening in their culture? In plain English, we'll have to determine if the restriction is also valid for us right now here in America. So if you're ready, let's go to the first of those two passages where the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 14 that women are to keep silent and they are not permitted to speak in the church. Those are strong words, aren't they? You are to keep silent. You are not permitted to speak in the church. Let me read the whole verse for you. 
I'm going to go exclusively NIV this morning. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now that's the verse you want to know about right there. With all you've taught us, Pastor, for these three or four weeks about women serving in roles of leadership, what about this? Well, what I would say to you this morning, Cornerstone, is this is a definitive example of why you should not get caught up in the proof text game. Proof texting is to take one verse, rip it out of its context, and beat everybody over the head with it as a definition of, of our statement of beliefs. In other words, it would be to take these verses and pull them out and disregard everything that's said and just hold these out here like this and say, see, this is what we believe about women. Women are not permitted to hold office in the church. They're not even permitted to speak in the church. If they, matter of fact, if they want to learn anything, they should be at home asking their husbands and he should be teaching them at home. That's a very dangerous practice, and at the end of this service, I think you'll have perfect clarity. Let me give you the background of the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, the book that you have open before you, 1 Corinthians is the third, at least third letter, the least the third communication in letter form that has been exchanged between Paul and the church at Corinth. Let me be really careful what I'm saying. 1 Corinthians, the book, is at least the third letter that has gone back and forth in an exchange between Paul and the members of the church at Corinth. Paul is very familiar with the church at Corinth. He lived there with them for a year and a half, and then he went away. After he left, he wrote them a letter. A letter that we do not possess. No one has it. No one's ever discovered it. No one even knows all of the words in it. But we know it existed for other reasons. Then, after Paul wrote them that letter, the church at Corinth then wrote Paul another letter. We don't have that letter either, but we know some of what was in it. Let's call that exchange from Paul to them... From them back to Paul, let's call that exchange zero Corinthians. This is it's Corinthians the prequel. Does that make sense? Because 1 Corinthians that you're looking at is the third time they've communicated at least. The other two, the back and forth exchange between Paul and Corinth, predates this and is the basis for Paul writing the third letter which you call 1 Corinthians. Does that make sense? All right, so don't get lost right here. Zero Corinthians is the understanding that 1 Corinthians is being written by Paul to the church at Corinth because of this exchange they've already had back and forth. Now, to try to explain all of that in a whole lot of detail uh, this morning, we'll not be, I won't have time for that. So what we've decided to do is we're going to present to you an entire series in 2020. The first of next year we're going to just preach through an entire series 
explaining 1 Corinthians based on 0 Corinthians, the exchange that happened that we don't have the full letter to, but we know some of what was in it because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. 0 Corinthians will be a series you'll catch next year, but just, I know you want me to explain that more. It's coming, okay? We'll explain how that whole thing worked. Now, Paul is writing 1 Corinthians in response to questions and comments that came back from Corinth in that zero Corinthians exchange. And when Paul is quoting from their letter, which he often does, uh, he says, you said this, this, and this. And he weaves that right into his writing as he's writing the book of 1 Corinthians. Let me show you how this works. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now the matters you wrote about, zero Corinthians. In other words, Paul said, you wrote me a letter. And now I want to answer what was, I want, I want, to, I want to specifically answer paragraph number three, where you said, it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. Those aren't Paul's words. Those are their words. Is everybody with me? They wrote a letter to Paul in which they said, well, it just seems like then, if we have lots of problems falling into sexual sins, it just seems good that you shouldn't have any sexual relations with a woman. Now, Paul's quoting them. Paul's not saying you can't have sexual relations with a woman. Paul's saying you wrote you should not have sexual relations with a woman. And then Paul's going to go on and say more about that in 1 Corinthians 7. And we'll talk to you about that next year. Let me give you another example. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said this. But, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, which Paul preached, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? I mean, you wrote me a letter and y'all are talking about it. You're not even sure there really was a resurrection. Wait a second. Now, Paul's not saying there's no resurrection. Paul's saying, you said there was no resurrection. And I'm saying you're full of nonsense because I have seen the resurrected Christ. Remember when he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15? He said, I went and talked to Peter, who's an eyewitness. I went and talked to James, who was an eyewitness. the, the, The apostles were eyewitnesses. There are 500 other people still alive today. We could go and depose them in a court of law. They're eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And if we're preaching that Christ has rose from the dead with hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses, then how say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, let me explain what's happening in 1 Corinthians. This style of writing where you take someone's words, paste them into your own letter, and then refute them. It's called a quotation, refutation, device. Quotation, refutation, device. Let me explain it a little further. Letty writes me a letter. Letty, you said blah, 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 blah. But I say, and I'm about to refute, blah, 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 blah. Does that make sense? Quotation, refutation, device. Uh, Kirk McGregor a theologian, for those of you who are going to want to check this out, Kirk McGregor wrote an excellent, excellent thesis on the quotation-refutation device and how it's used in 1 Corinthians. We've linked 
the theological essay in version. For those of you who want to go conjugate the Greek verbs, it's right there. Get it in version, and you can read that this week and explain it further. Let me give you another ex- example. The Corinthians said, well, it just seems like then if we're born again and you can't lose your salvation, do you know what comes next? Well, then we can just do whatever we want to do. And that's what they started teaching. And that's what they wrote to Paul. Well, it just seems like we can do whatever we want to do. Let me show it to you again, 1 Corinthians 10, 23. I have the right to do anything you say. Now, Paul's not the one saying you can do whatever you want to do. They said, we just think we can do whatever we want to do. Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. Uh, I have the right to do anything, they said. But Paul's saying, but wait a second. Living like that is not constructive. Verse 24 says this, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. So Paul uses the quotation refutation device, and he says, you said this, but I'm saying no. You can't do whatever you want to do. Whenever we get ready to act or speak or, 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 or live our lives, we have to consider how our behavior is going to affect our neighbor. In Romans, he taught this way. He said, you have to think about how your behavior is going to affect your brother and sister in Christ, in the body of Christ. We're connected together. We can't just blow each other up and, and, and do whatever we want to do and offend people. And just because you're free, sometimes you have to forego your rights. Do you remember last week's sermon? This is why I mentioned that. You can't exercise your rights all the time. Sometimes you have to say, I'll forego my rights in order that the kingdom of God and the gospel moves forward. Now, again, in zero Corinthians, the study we'll do next year, we'll study through the entire uh, first, uh, book of 1 Corinthians in that study. But for now, here's the big thing you need to remember. If you're reading through 1 Corinthians and the words you're reading do not fit with what all of the other passages are saying. Now, you're reading along and there's a nice theme going and all of a sudden you hit some words and you're like, Wait a second, these words don't fit with everything else I'm reading in the context. Then here's what you need to know. Then they're not Paul's words. They're the words of the false teachers that Paul is refuting. And he quotes their own words in order to give a proper refutation. And it usually will follow in the immediate following verses. His refutation will. Now, I think this is clear, but I just want to make sure... Because I think all of us, uh, if you attended any kind of higher education uh, in, in the university, they asked you to write a critical essay, okay? And they would say, now you're going to have to write this in MLA or AMA format, and we want it, uh, Alan, you had to do a lot of these. We want it properly uh, annotated and footnoted and a bibliography at the end, and we want it laid out. It has to be spaced exactly away and numbered a certain way. And what we want you to do is we want you to read this, this essay or this book, and we want you to write a critical analysis of it, and we expect you to quote from the author at least 20 times in your, in your essay. That's the only way they know you actually read it. And so they're going to make you quote from it, and then you can either agree and say, when the author wrote this, I just thought he was right on, on, you know, right on the mark. And this is an excellent analysis by the author. But when the author said X, Y, and Z, I just thought he was smoking something way out in left field. And I don't even know what that, that has nothing to do. And I think he's way off the mark there. And you can agree or disagree or dismantle it or whatever. But that's what a critical essay is. That's what First Corinthians is. 
Paul's using quotation and refutation device, and he's writing a critical response to the zero Corinthians exchange that has already happened. Now let me read again the words in question. I think if I read them a few more times and then I give you some background, it's going to be very clear. 1 Corinthians 14. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but they must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, the question you want to ask yourself this morning, are these words, these words, in harmony with the context of what Paul is teaching as he teaches through 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, do those words match his arguments or do they not match his arguments? Are those Paul's words or are those the words of someone else? So the only way you're going to know that is if we look at the context. So this morning I'm going to invite you to back up four chapters and let's just begin to ease into this. Ten, now remember when this was all written there are no chapters and there are no verse markings. This is a letter written in sentence paragraph form. Just like you'd write a personal letter or an email to someone. Long flowing letter. And to, as it flows from one thought to another, paragraph to paragraph. Well, we break it into chapters. But let's just start in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And let me just give you the thesis of, of three or four running chapters right here. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Paul's thesis in 1 Corinthians 11 is about interdependence and equality. Now, if you just will write those words down, or if you've got the version notes, you can go back and read chapter 11 in its entirety in your devotion time this week, and you will see that chapter 11 is about our interdependence upon each other and about equality. What Paul is concerned with in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is mutual submission. The same thing he taught in Ephesians, mutual submission. That men submit to the women, women submit to the men, and we just treat each other with mutual equality and mutual respect. And here's the context verse. Here's the thesis statement of 1 Corinthians 11. You ready? Nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Let this sink in now. Woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For a woman came from man, Eve came from Adam, so also man, as in everyone in this room, came from a woman. Do you understand Paul's reasoning here? Mutual dependence upon each other. Uh, we wouldn't have women except she came from a man, Eve from Adam, but none of us would be here unless we had a mama. That's just pretty basic, isn't it? We need each other, but watch him wrap it up. But everything comes from God. Now that's the thesis of chapter 11. Let me move up now, and I can explain the other parts of chapter 11 based on what you now know as the thesis statement. Look up at verse number 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, 
And the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, the word head, found here and in Ephesians, uh, give Americans a whole lot of trouble. Really, everyone in the Western world struggles with this word head. It's the word kafale in the Greek. And the word kafale in the Greek, uh, it does mean head, but it means it in a different way than maybe you understand it. Uh, in Latin, German, or English, head would be synonym with authority. Head of state, the head of the U.S. military, <clears throat> the head of our country, the head of our company. You think authority is what you think of. But in Greek, kafale, it means head, but the synonym of head, kafale, is source. In Greek, the synonym of head is the word source. The headwaters of the Mississippi are somewhere in Ohio. Do you understand the difference? doesn't mean the authority of the Mississippi River is in Ohio, but it means the source, the water coming down. Now, I just can play a little, little, little game with you here. We can just plug and play. I want you to realize that the authority of every man is Christ, and the authority of the woman is man, and the authority of Christ is God. That, okay, that would work. A little bit. This is a little questionable, but it, it could work. All right. I want you to realize that the source of every man is Christ, and the source of the woman is man, and the source of Christ is God. It would also work. So we have to decide which synonym is the right synonym authority or source. While they can both make sense, they both can't make sense with the context of the chapter. Let me go back to the thesis statement now. You'll see it. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman, say it out loud, as woman, as woman came from man... So also man is born of woman. But everything, source is clearly the right synonym. Do you see it? It's not about authority. Paul's not talking about authority. Paul's talking about mutual interdependence upon each other and equality, understanding that we are all sourced interdependently. Source is the right synonym for the word, not authority. All right, let me read verse 5. It's very clear in verse number 5 of chapter 11 that women praying and prophesying, praying and preaching in the worship assembly was the normal practice of the early churches. Let me read verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head is the same thing altogether if her head were shaved. Now, here's what I want you to know. We'll teach about this in, in zero Corinthians. What's being disputed right here is whether the men can make force the women to veil or not in the church service. This is not Western culture. This is Eastern culture. They wear a veil, especially when they worship. And when you, whether, whether we should force the women, men should force the women to veil or not, that's what's being disputed here. And, and because sometimes we don't get that, we totally missed the first half of this verse 
Paul says when a woman prays or prophesies, it's a foregone conclusion that the women were praying and prophesying. The only thing they're debating about is what they wear. Are you with me? No one's disputing in these chapters whether a woman is leading worship, saying something publicly. The only thing they're disputing is what should we force her to wear if she is going to stand up and pray or prophesy in the assembly. It's very clear that it's happening from the context of the scriptures. Then Paul follows in verse 10 and Paul says this, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. So now what Paul advocates is, Paul said, I I think we ought to give her authority over her own head. She ought to have power over her own head. I think we should let her make the call. Uh, Now, would any of you want to belong to a church that told you what kind of haircut you had to have, ladies? This is the context. I think we should let the women decide how they want to take care of that. And if they want to veil, let them veil. If they don't want to veil, don't let them veil. If they want to wear their hair up, let them wear it up. If they want to wear it down, let them wear it down. And we'll deal more with that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 next week. And then Paul makes the case again. as he That's 10. Now he flows right to 11. Nevertheless in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. For the woman came from man, the man came from woman. But everything, this is the big point, comes from God. The big thing that unites us this morning... It's not that we all look alike or have the same culture. The big thing that unites us is understanding the source of our eternal life, the source of our salvation, the source of eternal life is God. It's Christ who has saved us all. And that's the connection we really have in the body of Christ. Not that we all grew up poor, we all grew up rich, or we all grew up in America. The thing that connects us is that we have a bond in Jesus Christ. Now it's chapter 11. Chapter 12, Paul stresses the importance of every member using their spiritual gifts. Now, it's something we've talked extensively about. 1 Corinthians 12 is a spiritual gifts chapter where the gifts are listed. And Paul is talking about, I want, it's very important that every member does their part. Every member has a spiritual gift in the body of Christ, and every member is to use their spiritual gifts. Let me read for you just a few verses. 1 Corinthians 12. Verse number 1, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. So he's going to inform us, and that's what this chapter is about. Look at verse 12, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Paul said, if you want to understand what what, uh, the church is about, with the body of Christ, it just it understands your own body. You've got a lot of members, okay? But all of those members work together to make one body and to make it function in perfect harmony with, to, to its utmost ability as God created. You need all of your members. Now, you can survive without a foot or without a leg or without a hand or without a finger, you know? That's why he says the head of the body is Christ. You can't survive without a head. But you could survive, you know... If some members didn't want to do their part and other members didn't want to do their part and if just a few members wanted to give and a few members wanted to volunteer, you could still function. Wouldn't be great, but the greatest way is when every member 
is giving to the ministry, serving in the ministry. Every member is being discipled. Every member is on the path to making disciples. When the body's hitting on all cylinders with all of its parts working, that's when everything is just as it should be. Look at verse 21. Now the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are You talk to me right here. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are what? In context of 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, what is he talking about? Let me say it another way. Who is he talking about? He's talking about men and women in the previous chapter and how we're mutually dependent upon each other. Now he flips over to chapter 12 and says everybody should use their gift. And if somebody's saying these parts we don't really need, we can function with only the boy parts but not without the girl parts, God said you're crazy because the parts you think are weaker, they're absolutely indispensable. And if you don't believe me, chop off your big toes. Chop off your opposing thumbs and see how life goes. Just four little parts will rock your world if you lose them. Lose an eye. Lose your hearing. Just lose one little function of the body and you'll realize immediately we call that handicapped. You're behind the curve. You you have the difficulty now because you don't have all the parts functioning. By the way, let me just toss this out there. I did a little research this week and, and looked at the volunteer list of people who are greeters and people who volunteer in children's church and people who volunteer in the nursery. Does anybody, anybody want to even take a guess what the male women breakdown is on that? 65% of the volunteers in this church are female. Two to one over the men. So who really runs the church anyway? I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. For these men to say we don't need the women, I would say to the American church, your church claps tomorrow without them. Uh, because that's the volunteer base not only in our church, but in every church anywhere in the world I've ever gone to, and I've gone to a bunch of them. They are all exactly the same ratios. Let's look at verse number 25. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern one for another. Now, I'll just ask you at a high level, do you think equality is being taught or not? I'll let you make your own assessment. You need all the parts. We all came from each other. We're all connected because of God. Everyone should use your gift. And if you say, well, this part's not really important, those parts you don't think are important are more important than you think they are. They're actually absolutely essential so that every part of the body should have equal concern for each other. I believe equality is being taught. Now, it's clear what Paul's speaking about in spiritual gifts is that every member of the body has them. We should value them, we should recognize their gifts, and we should tell them to use their gifts to make the body all that it can be. That's chapter number 12, all right? 13, we're getting close now. Chapter 13 is a quite famous chapter, and I only need just like 30 seconds to explain chapter 13 because you know it so well. 1 Corinthians 13 is what you call the love chapter. It's read at a lot of wedding ceremonies. It's quite famous. But in chapter 13, the synopsis of 13 is Paul is focused on the primacy of love in our walk as Christians. He's saying we, it's really not about marriage, it's about life in the body of Christ. We must love each other. We must. It's essential 
to a healthy church. It's essential to being able to get the mission uh, forwarded. It's essential to making disciples that we love one another. He said in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Now, I'm just going to advocate to you this week that probably fantastic follow-up devotion to this message would be to spend, you know, Monday and Tuesday in chapter 11 and, and Wednesday and Thursday in chapter 12, you know, and Friday, read 1 Corinthians 13 this week, read these chapters this week and just let God pour into your heart. Chapter 13 is about one topic and the topic is love among the people of God. Chapter 14, now we're there, now we're there. In chapter 14, what Paul does is he draws his conclusions from everything he said now in chapters 11, 12, and 13. Watch how he starts chapter 14. Follow the way of love. That's what he just talked about, chapter 13. Love, love, love. Okay, follow the way of love. Watch his next words. Eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Wait, that's chapter 12. That's chapter 12, and here comes chapter 11, especially uh, prophecy, which he talked about women prophesying in chapter 11. Let me read verse number 5. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Now, this is being read to the assembly. If I were to stand here and say to you this morning, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, who is every one of you? It's every one of you. Not every one of you who's a man, it's every one of you, both men and women. But I would rather have you prophesy. So if I say, I, I, I want you all to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you all prophesy. It means preach, teach, proclaim the word of God. Now, it's a very important passage here. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring to you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? In other words, we've got to understand what's being said. Because the church at Corinth was in a lot of confusion. Their services were a disorganized disaster, Okay. It was like poetry reading night and everybody wanted to get up at once. It was just a big old confused mess. And so Paul's saying, listen, everybody can use their gifts. I want everybody to use their gifts, but we got to do it in a certain way, okay? So clearly, Paul wants every brother and sister to use their gifts. Look at verse 31. For you can all prophesy. I mean, I don't even know how to explain that except to say to Cornerstone, you can all prophesy. You know what it means? You can all prophesy. You know what it means in the Greek? You can all prophesy. You know what it means in English? You can all prophesy. <laughs> all of you can prophesy. You see what I'm saying? Don't try to... Con- For you can all prophesy, Paul said, but in turn, in an organized fashion. You can all use your gifts, but use them in an organized, non-confusing way. Yes, you can all prophesy, but do it in turn, so, so everyone may be instructed and encouraged, which is the point of coming here on a Sunday morning, for everyone to be instructed, for everyone to be encouraged, to have your batteries recharged, to go live for Jesus, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so on. Verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. 
Let me, let me say this in plain English. If you're going to prophesy in the church of God and you claim to have that gift, then keep yourself under control. And if you say, well, I'm just, when the Holy Spirit comes upon me, I just get out of control. Paul said, nonsense. The spirits of the prophets, your spirit is to remain under your control. You are not to get out of control. Does that make sense? Stay in an orderly fashion. You say, well, I get really excited when I start talking about good. I'm glad you do. Get fired up about it. But just maintain decorum and don't, don't, don't lose yourself, okay? 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people, now we flow into the problem text. Women should remain silent in the church. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law said. Now, 33 is what I want you to look at. Can you guys go back to 33 for me? 33. See this double dash right here? Now, depending on what version of the Bible you're using, none of them knew exactly how to deal with this, and I'll show you why. Most versions, a lot of versions, have a period right there and make this two different sentences. They double-dashed it. What they're saying is there's some punctuation belongs right here. Now, let me remind you, in a Greek manuscript, Paul wrote this as a letter. It had punctuation. That letter is long gone. No one knows where it's at. What we do have is we have copies of copies of copies of copies of that letter. Everybody with me still? When they made the copies of the letter, they don't use punctuation in the copies. It's a technical device that keeps the letter error-free. They write only the letters in the words, and they run them all together. There's not even breaks between the words in many manuscripts. It's one flowing, you know what I'm saying, just all jammed together. There's no verses, no chapters, no paragraph marks. And then they go up and they count the letters and they write the number at the bottom of the page, and if the number matches the copy they copied from, then they got it error-free. Are you with me? That's how they Xeroxed, and that's how they knew they had an exact copy. But when you got that manuscript a few hundred years later, and you wanted to translate it into Latin or English or something, you had to read it and figure out how to break it into words and where to put punctuation and so that's why when you read English Bibles, some have quotes, some have double dash right here, some have a period, because the, edit, the editing committee, the translating committee, is trying to figure out, well, in our opinion, there should be a period there. No one knows except for Paul who wrote the original. But here's what I want to show you. Verse 33 is very unusual. Matter of fact, read as an English sentence, 33 doesn't even make sense as an English sentence. For God is not the God of disorder but of peace as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Doesn't even make sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense is because whoever was putting in the numbers numbered this 33, but the first half of this actually goes with 32, and the last half of this actually goes with 34. Let me read it to you and see if this makes sense. Here's 32. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, stay in control, because God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Period. The rest of 33 goes with the next verse. Let me read it to you that way. In all the congregation of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the churches. <laughs> Makes sense. They are not permitted to speak. 
They must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, when you hear these verses being read, these words being read this morning, Women are to keep silence. They are not permitted to speak. If they want to learn something, they should ask their husband at home. The law says, no, no, no. It is disgraceful for them to speak publicly in this congregation. When you hear these words, you know immediately in your heart that these words are saying the exact opposite of everything Paul just taught for three chapters. For three chapters, he just taught the women are praying and prophesying in the church We're to mutually love one another. We all are interdependent upon each other. Every person is to use their spiritual gifts. 12, we must love one another. Chapter 14, then Paul says, blah, 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 blah. And then you hit those verses that say the exact opposite of what was just said for four chapters. Now, just focus right here. The reason those words are out of harmony with the context of four chapters of Paul's teaching is because these words are not Paul's words. These are the words of the false teachers. And Paul is quoting their own words to them. The law does not say anywhere in the law that women are forbidden to speak in the congregation. Not the law of Moses, it's not there. But you see, the Jews took the law of Moses... And then they added hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other commandments to the law of Moses called the oral Torah, the oral law. Does everybody know what I'm talking about right now? I can explain more if I see some blank looks right now. The law of Moses is, is, is Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy where the Ten Commandments are given and you're not supposed to sleep with your mother. All of that, you know, stuff right there. Okay, And you're not supposed to trim your beard. You can't wear a polycotton blend shirt. You're not allowed to eat shrimp. It's all right there. Okay, Then the Jews came along for thousands of years and added laws to that. Man-made laws. As a matter of fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the biography of Jesus. And Jesus is constantly colliding with these people saying... You've added to the law of God and all of your man-made laws are poppycock and they should not even be listened to. Jesus, how is it that you eat with unwashed hands? You remember all of this? Listen, he's like you made all of these rules up and there's so many rules you bind upon people but you don't lift one finger to keep the rules yourself. All of your rules are nonsense and we're teaching our people don't even follow them. The law of Moses is good and Christ fulfilled all of the law of Moses, the Bible says. He said, think not that I came to do away with the law. I came to do away with your stupid law. But I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. I am the fulfillment of the law. I am the one who kept the law. I have never taken the name of the Lord my God in vain. I have never broken the rules. I have never dishonored my parents. I have never stolen. I have never coveted. I have never lusted. I have never broken these things. I am the fulfillment of the law. Now, the law of Moses, distinguish it from the law of man, the oral Torah that they made. The oral Torah says you women are unclean and should never, your voice should never be heard in the congregation. Now, when Paul says these words, they're not Paul's words. He's not advocating that we enforce the oral law. Paul is quoting from the false teachers from the letter they sent him in the zero Corinthians exchange... He's quoting their own words back to a group of Jewish men 
who are trying to practice something called syncretism. Now, we're going to talk about this for two weeks, so I want to go ahead and make sure you understand. Syncretism. Uh, let's sync our calendar, Steve. Synchronize. Syncretism is the synchronization. It is the merging of two or more sets of religious practices. Syncretism is to take the law, which you've been delivered from, and try to merge it back into Christianity. Let's imagine we all grew up as idolaters. It would be to try to take some of our idolatry practices and bring them back inside of the the church of Jesus Christ and kind of use them together. Uh, I've traveled through much of Europe, and as I've traveled, I've tried to go, on some of the, uh, go visit some of the great uh, basilicas and cathedrals and, and, and churches uh, in Europe. Many times I've gone into a church in Rome, and I've seen things that don't match, like the signs of the zodiac laid in marble inside of a Christian church. And I'm just sitting there looking at that like, well, are they astrologers? they got a Jesus on a cross. And they got Leo and Aquarius. And I'm trying to figure out exactly what would this church teach on Sunday morning. You see what I'm saying? Here's the bulletin and your weekly horoscope. Let's take math. I don't even know what that would look like. But that's the common practice. That was a common practice for the Catholic church to go into a culture and just merge, merge two things together. Actually, that's what Constantine did in the 300s. When he declared Rome Catholic, I mean Rome Christian, he just took their... They didn't cease to be idolaters. They just kind of merged Christianity and idolatry together and ran with that for a while. That's called syncretism. The merging of two sets or more sets of religions together. Now here's what happened at Corinth. The male faction of the church stressed obedience to the oral law, the man-made law of the Jews, as being necessary for salvation. That false teaching was something that Paul passionately opposed in most of his writings, especially Galatians and Colossians. Now listen to Galatians for a minute. Paul's writing to the church at Galatia, speaking against syncretism. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces from the law, the oral law? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Throughout the Pauline writings, Paul argues that they come out from idolatry, out from Judaism, and be free as believers. Be free from the law. Be free from the oral law. And Paul consistently admonishes his congregations everywhere that he's writing, do not observe the man-made law. Do not observe the man-made rules. Watch how strong this is. Galatians 5 verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by the law, you have been alienated from Christ. Watch these strong words. You have fallen away from grace. Paul goes so far as to say, That when you practice syncretism, when you try to merge the law or idolatry back in with your Christianity, it is going back into bondage and constitutes a clear rejection of Jesus Christ. You've fallen from grace. That's why we say salvation is by, by faith, through grace, not of works. You can't do anything. Just leave it all with Jesus Christ, okay? 
That's the refutation of what's happening. Now, we know this is true uh, we, we, because, well, you'll know it's true in a minute. <laughs> you'll know it's true in a minute when I read you the following verses. If it's a quotation, refutation device, then what will follow in the preceding verses, the following verses, sorry, will be a direct refutation and rebuke of these people who are using these words on their congregation. Let me read it, verse 36. Did the word of God originate with you, men? Are you the only people? It's a masculine word in the Greek. Are you men the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, then you acknowledge that what I am writing is the Lord's command. It's a direct refutation of the men who were perpetrating this fraud upon the church. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Paul is not attempting to silence the women. Paul is rebuking the men for attempting to silence the women. Stay with me. Paul's not saying, women, be quiet in the church. It's not proper for you to speak if you want anything. He's quoting the words of the false teachers. And then he just kicks them in the teeth with rebuke in the following verses. For trying to silence the women in the church. And Paul alleges in his refutation that trying to silence the women is the equivalent of alleging that the word of God belongs only to the men. Do you hear Paul's words? Did the word of God only come to you men? So when the Bible is written, it's only written to the men. That's what you're saying? Only the men can read the word of God. And then you're supposed to tell everybody else what it said. Are you serious, you guys? Paul exposes the absurdity of their false teaching by asking a rhetorical question uh, in verse number, what is that, 36. And both rhetorical questions demand a negative no response. Obviously, the word of God neither originated with men nor has come only to men. Hence, it is ridiculous and contrary to the character of the gospel to disallow women from speaking in the church. Now, Paul knows already from Chloe, who also runs a church, who's also a part of all of this conversation, Paul's already gotten a letter from Chloe that the last letter the zero Corinthians exchange that Paul wrote to them was completely ignored by the men in the church. So somebody's already ratted the men out and said, hey, Paul, you need to send another letter, but seriously, I don't know if it'll do any good. The last letter you wrote these people, they completely ignored everything you said. So watch Paul rebuke the men one more time, verse 38. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. (laughs) How about that? Almost sounds childish, doesn't it? You guys who are telling everybody, shut up, listen, we're going to tell you to shut up. And if you ignore what I'm saying, then, then you're, you're not of God. You're not of the Spirit. Because what I'm saying comes from the Spirit of God, is what he's saying. And if you want to ignore what I'm telling the church to do, then we're going to ignore you. Now here's Paul's conclusion, verse number 39. Therefore, my brothers and sisters... Why don't we just read this out loud? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be... Stop right there a minute. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. That's in harmony with chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, and the beginning of 14. 
Does that make sense? He went right back to Pauline words again, having rebuked the false teachers and said, you said, blah, 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 blah. But I'm saying, did the word of God come only to you? Quit telling the women this. It's out of character with the gospel of Christ. And if you ignore me, you will be ignored. Furthermore, the, the word from God is this. My brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. And do not forbid the speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Which is also in harmony with the previous chapters. Now let me tie a bow around it. It's both tragic and ironic. That the very words Paul penned. To guarantee unrestricted participation of women in church have been inverted through misinterpretation to deny women equality in the church. The very words he penned in chapter 14 to guarantee every woman here equal access and equal exercise of gifts were inverted. And we were taught that Paul was saying what Paul never said. He's refuting the false teachers. Now, whether that misinterpretation was intentional or whether that misinterpretation was done through ignorance, I don't know that I'm qualified to say. I have some gut feeling about it, but I don't know whether it was done through ignorance through a period of time, and we got this false teaching in our church in modern America now. And the problem is now we've exported it to Mexico and Nicaragua and El Salvador and Cuba and Romania and India and Nepal and everywhere we've sent a missionary. So we have to go back to all those places and undo the mistake we made. Trust me, that goes over like a lead balloon when I try to deliver that message. Whether it was done intentionally or whether it was done through ignorance, it's hard to say. But all I can say is at Cornerstone this morning, you guys are not ignorant. We have access to scholarship they did not have access to to, uh, in times past. You can go home and sit down at your computer this afternoon and you can verify everything that was just said here this morning with a few keystrokes. You are not ignorant. You are well informed. And the interpretation of scripture that's being presented by Pastor David and in these messages is of the highest level. What I'm asking you to do at Cornerstone this morning is very simple. Just reverse the curse. Just don't perpetuate it. Just reverse the curse. You don't have to crusade. You don't have to get torches in Storm City Hall or Southwestern Theological Seminary or anything else. You don't have to cause a protest or a riot. Just in your home and in our church, we are in the kingdom of God here. Just act like it. That's all. Just reverse the curse. I'm privileged to be the voice of Cornerstone almost every, every week. And I want to use my voice to guide us, if possible, to that unity, to that love that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. Wouldn't that be a sweet thing if we valued the body? And even when we saw a part of the body, we thought, well, this is a little weaker part of the body. We valued that part of the body as equal to our own selves. Wouldn't that be a sweet place to live and to grow up? Speaking for our church, we're going to allow everyone to have equal access both to learn the word of God and to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are going to recognize here that God gifts people as he chooses to gift them. We don't gift them. 
God gifts them as he chooses to gift them. And our only responsibility is to recognize another person's gift and help them develop their gift and use their gift to edify the body of Christ. For Cornerstone, we're going to work together to conduct our ministries in an organized way that honors Jesus Christ. Just what we read about for four chapters. We will continually submit ourselves to one another recognizing that none of us is independent of another we are all interdependent and let me put it plain English we all need each other and if we need each other I guarantee you we need God a whole lot more even than that and that is the state of affairs here this morning are there restrictions there are two I just gave you one of them it's not really a restriction it's a misread passage of scripture where Paul isn't restricting you he's actually liberating you We'll deal with 1 Timothy chapter 2 next week. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. So let's, let's just pray about that for a moment. Let's just pray about Listen, I'll, here's how I would like you to pray. I can be persuasive in my arguments, systematic and lawyer-like if I want to be, but this morning, really, I don't want to be because I don't want to convince you of anything. I want the Holy Spirit to convince you this morning. And what I would like this morning is every honest seeker of truth, I wish you'd just call out to God right now and say, God, put the truth in my heart. Put the truth in my mind. Whatever I've believed that's incorrect, whatever it is, this subject or any other, God, as I'm daily in your word and weekly in my discipleship group and weekly in church, God, would you just put the truth on that? Just give, give, me, a, give me revelation of what is true and what is right. God, when I see words that are out of, in disharmony with other words, God, help me, help me to seek the truth and know what's right. Listen, I wish you'd just spend a few minutes this morning praying for our church family. I wish every member here this morning, hundreds of people, would just say, God, create a spirit of beautiful unity in this place. God, help me to value every member of your body. God, help me to see the value in the lives of the other people in this room and in our church family. God, help me to discover my gifts and use them in the body of Christ so that this church could be everything you created it to be. Maybe you need to be a member of this church and that's something you've been praying about. I wish you'd join today. Just take just a moment just slip out of your seat right now you can come sit miss leah's here you can just come sit down right next to her and say we're, we're ready to take the next step if you're ready for that just go ahead and just go ahead and take that next step right now if you came into the house of god this morning not really knowing if you had a relationship with christ maybe you believe there was a god but it's he's never been personal to you it's not like you have a personal relationship why don't you enter into that personal relationship with Christ today? Stop relying upon yourself and put all of your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. By a simple prayer of faith, Romans says, for whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why don't you call upon him this morning? Pray like this. Dear God, I confess to you this morning that I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Jesus, I know there is salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus. You are the only Savior. 
So today I put my complete and total trust in you, asking you to forgive me of my sins, come into my heart and into my life, be the Lord and Savior of my life. I'm trusting only in you. And today I'm asking you to be my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, help me to connect with a group of Christians that can guide me on the journey now. Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We'll prepare for our closing song.